Hi. Um, thank you for starting the room. It wasn't working for me. For whatever reason, uh, my uh, app was not loading right, So, but I could click on your notification. Can, can you hear me fine? Um, if you could do me one uh, favor, um, could you click on my profile picture and make me a moderator? So how you do it is you click on my profile and um, and then there should be in the bottom uh, make moderator an option. So if you could do that, Tim, then I can I can moderate the room, bring people up when they have questions and things like that. Can you hear me, Tim? Um, Tim, can you hear me? Uh, Serena, can you hear me? Can anyone hear me? I, I can hear you. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. So, uh, Tim, if you could make us moderators, please. Uh, my app was not working. I was trying to get in. The only way I could get into this room was by getting a notification about the room. Um, That's a little weird. Yeah, it wouldn't load. The app has been glitching for a while now. In fact, for me, whenever I enter a room, I can't leave. I have to close the app and come back in. Tim, um, are you able to unmute your mic? It's on the lower right hand corner a little microphone if you can hear us okay oh great perfect thank you thank oh, you so much okay now i can make you moderators bring victoria up victoria <clears throat> why were you in the others i'm obviously i'm sorry we I never had this problem before that I couldn't open up a room or see any room. So thank you, Tim, for, for opening up this room. Oh, all good. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Well, I, I don't didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. I just clicked no, on no, it. No, no, you, you're yeah. fine. You're good. Yeah. You're good. our hero, actually. You yes. just, totally just yeah. saved the day. Yes, ah. you did. Victoria had the same problem. So we were talking on WhatsApp um, that we are having the same issue. So we got then your notification and then we came here. So mm, perfect. Yeah, same problem Yeah, thank you everyone for coming. I'm sorry we are starting later. I came late, but as I said, I, completely restarted my phone because I thought it was my phone having issues. <laughs> Same. I kept doing that yesterday. It's not your phone. It's the app. I promise. Yeah, it's so weird. I can't even see the hallway. It's not showing in the hallway. Is it just me? No, I can't see nope. anything in the hallway. So exactly I, I did see it in the hallway. You did. Okay, good. good. I can't. It says error. Well, I had error as well, but yeah. Like some friends are here. That's nice. 
Yeah, it's a busy group. So, uh, so is everyone, just... everyone's at NYU, is that right? Uh, no, no. Uh, no. I'm at NYU. Um, Serena is actually um, in the defense <laughs> department, <laughs> working I, for the mili like, military. Uh, yeah. I'm for, right. yeah, for a defense contractor. I'm down in Orlando. Oh, cool. And Victoria, she's in, um, uh, is it in Portland or in Oregon? Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry. Yeah, I'm I'm near Portland. I'm trying to ping people because I'm thinking maybe no one can see the room. Oh yeah, let me do. This. But yeah, yeah, I'm I'm near Portland. It's true. We had some sun today. It was beautiful. Oh nice. Yeah, about twelve minutes. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hope you had time to go outside. Usually when it's sunny, I never. Okay. Um, yeah, let me add. I'm sorry that we are a few minutes late. Uh, I don't no, know. that's okay. That's Everybody okay. should pay. Yeah. And, I'm all, and I'm all the way over in Scotland, so <laughs> oh. coming from all yes. over. <laughs> what um, time of day is it there, Jamie? 2 a.m. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, hopefully you enjoy today's discussion. I am very much looking forward to it. I was okay, looking good. at your paper. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I was even talking to a friend of mine who couldn't make it today, but he, yeah. he had some queries that if it's relevant, I'll ask them later on. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a brave new world, that's for sure. Yeah. But being yeah, up this late, it's a small price to pay for science, eh? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great reference. I, I'm planning on rereading that book sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, so we are from all over the world, from different backgrounds, um, scientists. Yeah, great. Um, yeah. Medical doctors, Dr. Shah, she's a medical doctor, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. uh, engineers um, of different backgrounds. Fantastic. I work in arts education and science ed mm -hmm. all over the place. Everyone just in, interested in uh, new concepts, kind of like a, an audio version of a TED, a TED talk or something, huh? Eh? Yeah, where you can interact, basically. Yeah, it's great. Speaker. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the whole idea of this club is like to bring mm -hmm. science closer to to everyday people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and kind of we had, we meet almost every day and the days we don't meet, why did, oh, we met earlier in the day, so kind of not at this time of the day, we kind of all missed it and we were chatting yeah. how bored yeah. we are and what should we do with our evenings. Well, well so much better than watching Netflix or Stan or something, Exactly. Right? Yeah, right. but sometimes we meet by accident. We just can't help it. <laughs> we find ourselves cool. together in rooms. And you know, really, we were talking about, do you remember we were talking about the non-coding DNA about two weeks mm -hmm. ago? Yeah, I don't remember why, but we were, yeah, we were talking about it happily. And oh, that's great. Was that the uh, Uniquely Human set, I believe? Mm, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A researcher cool, cool. Here that uh, looked at a unique human um, gene sequences. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a group at uh, Sinai, Eric Nessler's team, has oh, been yeah. looking at some of these long non-coding RNAs in humans and the context of uh, 
depression and impulsivity and all kinds of other uh, neuropsychiatric disorders. Yeah, yeah, it's a great group. Mm -hmm. I should, I should mm -hmm. invite them. I didn't invite them. Uh, great. Let me start by introducing you, and sure. then we'll go from yeah. there. So, welcome everyone to the Science Society. Uh, I'm very honored. We are very honored to have our guest speaker here today, Doctor Professor uh, Timothy Breed, uh, Timothy Breedy. <laughs> Sorry, um, okay. and he uh, earned his PhD in neuroscience from the McGill University in 2004. And following there, he um, did his uh, postdoctoral fellowship at UCLA. Um, and um, in 2009, he established the Cognitive Neuroepigenetics Laboratory at the University of Queensland. And um, his uh, lab is elucidating how the genome is connected to the environment through epigenetic modifications and how these relationships um, shape the brain and behavior throughout life. So um, yeah, we are very honored to having you here. And if it's okay, Victoria will ask you a more general question. Sure, and sure, yeah, go, please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry, I had to navigate back. I was That's still okay. checking on my hallway to see if it was there. Yes, it's not. But thank well, you again, um, Dr. Brady. Really, you are no starting the room. That was that was just so great. Um, <laughs> you came to the rescue. Um, and and Science Society welcomes you, even if you haven't have rescued us in the room. So, <laughs> yeah, we're really excited to to hear you deliver your, your research. And also, sure. it's wonderful to get to know the researchers who come in a little bit, um, you know, as a person, a little bit beyond what you're doing as your research. So what I'd like to ask you is if you can recall a time in your life when you felt a unique connection to science and you felt like, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm a science person and this is where I want to be. Or maybe you had, oh, wow. you know, like a fork in the road or something and then you chose science, but you know, yeah. did, did you have, did you have a moment? And then also you know, maybe you could do this yeah. up to where, where you are today with your research. So thank you. Sure. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, that's a great question actually. So when I started uh, in university, I always wanted to be a, a fighter pilot. And uh, so I was going down the, the path of engineering and uh, aerospace engineering, and uh, I couldn't handle the math. <laughs> so then I started bouncing around in uni, and uh, I, I ended up in some psychology programs, and then I, I took a couple years off and uh, studied French, and I, I moved to France and lived there for a year as part of an exchange program. And I think... There was a moment when I was in France when I realized that um, I wanted to get back into research because prior to going, I had volunteered in some labs uh, as an undergrad. And uh, it just struck me that that was where I wanted to be. So I finally got serious and went back to the undergraduate university. It was in Dalhousie uh, University in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and uh, volunteered in the lab again that I had done some courses in. Uh, for free for a summer. I just took unemployment insurance and uh, didn't have a job, so I volunteered in the lab and it, it cemented my interest in neuroscience. And then ever since then, it's just been progressive, right? So I started off in behavioral neuroscience 
and then moved to McGill, and then it was introduced to epigenetics, and then moved to UCLA and was introduced to heavier uh, molecular biology. And all of that culminated into creating this, this uh, research program that I pursue here at the University of Queensland. So hopefully that answers your question. So yeah, I, was supposed to be, I was supposed to be a fighter pilot and I ended up a neuroscientist. Right. And, <laughs> and the other thing I hear is that you follow the path yeah. that you were, you felt drawn to follow. And, and Absolutely. It, you know, it really, um, I always think if, you know, people talk about if you could do anything, you know, if money was mm -hmm. no issue. And so it sounds like you created that opportunity for yourself. You know, yeah, I found my way and found, you know, what I was interested in, what I was good at. And uh, yeah, just kept pursuing it and chasing the sun at the same time. So I kept moving west and finally ended up down under. Well, I'm glad that you can share that story because I think it helps. I think sometimes people lose faith in humanity. And mm -hmm. and I feel like we're we're born with our innate curiosity and motivation to follow our curiosity. And so mm -hmm. here you are an example of doing just that. You know, you gave yourself the time to figure out what what you absolutely to do and you found it. So yeah, yeah, thank you. And and then that that led you, you know, so that how did you end mm -hmm. up right? You so then you um along the way became neuroscience and then mm -hmm. up to this awesome. research. Yeah, so this re this research has been evolving for the last uh, fifteen years, um, and it all comes from interactions with people. To be quite honest, so as every step along the way, I've met someone new who interest in, interested or introduced me, sorry, to novel concepts in science. So the 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 most uh, influential person that I've come across in my career, there were two people. One, a person by the name of James McGaw at uh, UC Irvine, who introduced me to the world of learning and memory. And then the person by the name of Professor John Maddock, uh, when I came to Australia, he introduced me to this world of non-coding RNA. So if anyone's in the crowd is familiar with uh, non-coding RNA, bi RNA biology in general, they'll know of John because he's been spearheading this movement for the, the better part of 20 years. This idea that junk DNA is not so, so much junk after all and that most of uh, our genome is actually quite active um, and uh, functional. So that's what we'll talk about today. Yeah, thank you. And even if we mm. don't, I can assure you that everybody, mm. like people in the audience are doing mad Googling. <laughs> you know? Oh, good, good, good. You know, we're good. taking notes. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it is rather pompous to assume that something is useless just because we don't know what its use is. That's exactly his position on it. Exactly, right? So, And the reason that people hadn't, or assumed it was non-functional is because we didn't have the technology at the time to interrogate the the deepest parts of the genome. And now we have the tools available to us. So so there's a lot more to come in the coming years for sure. Yeah, that's it's just, you know, stay humble and stay curious. Yes, for and, sure. Um, yeah, so at, at that, uh, you okay. are welcome to launch into your discussion. Sure, and then yeah. Um, you know, some, either we you can choose your format. Sometimes we have the guest speaker really is comfortable just delivering their talk mm. and yeah, yeah, coming yeah. to a close and then having a Q&A or sometimes people like to have a Q&A to push them along. So whichever way you would like to have this room flow, it's yours. Mm. Okay. Well, I thought maybe what I would do is just um, introduce you guys to um, my excitement, why I'm so 
um, pumped up about RNA and RNA biology. And then I'll progress through and tell you a little bit about the research, but you guys feel free to interrupt and ask questions at any time, okay? Yes, and I will um, just so, for one moment. When, when you see people flashing their mics like this, oh, we, are, yes. we, are, uh, yeah. we are applauding. Oh, okay. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah, I can only see. Yeah, just see a few people in front of me on the screen. But yeah, because I'm on my phone, I didn't know how to set this up on my computer. I think so. we're all on our phone. It's not really a user-friendly ah. app, so we do a ah, lot of okay. scrolling. Okay. So, all right. Okay. Well, please. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's all yours. All right, I'll take it away. So, um, in, you may or may not know this, but about 15 years ago, um, the human genome was sequenced for the first time. Okay, maybe a little bit longer than that. And then what happened was there were a bunch of consortium around the world, one called the ENCODE in the United States, and then the Phantom Project in Japan, which um, basically started just producing massive amounts of sequencing data, right? Looking at all different species and different cell types and et cetera, et cetera. And they started to publish these data, right? So around 2012, I guess, was when the ENCODE really started coming online. So you would see the, you know, massive dumps of papers into science and nature all at the same time, um, characterizing different aspects of the genome and RNA and DNA and what's happening inside different cell types. So just, I'm just trying to give you a little bit of a historical context. So what they discovered was that there's really, you know, exquisite patterns of gene expression in different cell types, which I guess wouldn't be surprising. Um, but then they also discovered all kinds of different layers of regulatory control of how genes are expressed, again, in different cell types. But then perhaps the biggest surprise, okay, that came out of the ENCODE project was that only 2% of the entire genome codes for proteins. So all the things that make us who we are, you know, muscle, bone, neurons, all that stuff, only 2%. Can you believe that, right? And of the 2%, right, most of those genes, so it's like 20,000 genes that create proteins, their function is actually similar across species. So what that means is that we, as humans, share 20,000 protein-coding genes that are also the same protein-coding genes in a worm such as the nematode or the C. elegans, which is a model system that people use to study uh, molecular biology and neuroscience. So, so we're not so different from a worm, right? But what is different about humans and higher order organisms is this capacity for cognition, okay? So in, in, you know, in the same vein of understanding that only 2% of the genome coded for protein, they also came to realize that the other 98% of non-coding DNA actually was transcriptionally active. So that meant that there's all kinds of RNAs being generated from the genome that don't make protein. So they stop at that stage and then they do fun things all in of themselves. Um, but also in that context of these non-coding RNAs, folks started to realize that RNA can do a lot of things that every other molecule that we know of can do. So what I mean by that is that RNAs can act like DNA and can be inherited. They can be transmitted across generation. RNAs can also act like enzymes. So there's a class of RNA called ribozymes 
that have catalytic activity. So they're acting like proteins, right? And then there's this massive amount, this diverse population of regulatory or functional RNA that is just, we're just at the tip of the iceberg in understanding of what they do. We'll talk about those guys in a little, little bit later. But other things that also emerged in the context of RNA and why I'm excited about it is that there's many other layers of regulation that are really important for how a cell can function. So it turns out that RNAs can get localized, right? So they can fly around neurons. They can be expressed in different subcompartments of neurons, which can then lead to different functions, right? So you imagine how important that would be if it's a, a non-coding RNA that's regulatory, right? So it does all kinds of things to, to other processes in the cell, depending on where and when it's expressed. Now, RNA can also be um, modified, right? So it can be regulated by chemical changes to the RNA itself, which can change its ability to function, its ability to become protein, et cetera, right? And all of this, we know that leads to um, just basically different functional properties of this really interesting class of molecules. Now that's important because we know that, you know, if RNA is so functionally diverse and we can get a handle on all these different ways it could be regulated, we can potentially use it as a programmable therapeutic Right. So I'm sure all of you have heard about the, the COVID vaccine, right, which is an mRNA based therapy. Right. But that's just the beginning. More recently, folks have shown that RNA can be used as a therapy to treat heart disease. Right? So there's the folks have shown that you can rescue heart failure through an RNA based therapy similar to the COVID vaccine. And a group in San Diego, just in terms of bringing it into the brain, for, the, for my area of interest, a group in San Diego showed that you can actually use RNA therapies to rescue um, phenotype and behavior and, and, fun and brain plasticity in a model of Huntington's disease, right? So Huntington's disease is a disease where there's uh, aberrant expression of RNAs that come from repeat regions in the genome, and these RNAs become toxic, really bad for the cell, and they can kill neurons. So this team has shown that you could use an RNA therapeutic to actually mop up those toxic RNAs in Huntington and slow the progression of the disease. So this is really important, right? Because this we're now on the, the threshold of a new frontier of therapeutic interventions that can rely 100% um, on the programmable nature of RNA. All right. So that's a bit of the background of why I'm excited. Um, so today uh, or tonight, I'll just tell you a little bit about our work um, on functionally characterizing some of these, these uh, previously undetected non-coding RNAs in the brain. Um, so we're very interested in functionalization of RNA and how it can regulate, regulate brain plasticity. Um, but up until recently, we haven't been able to, to detect any of these interesting RNA species because the technology hasn't been available. So um, if you're not familiar with sequencing, um, basically it's, a, it's a, a massive high throughput approach to be able to detect the expression of all RNAs in the entire population at the same time. Now it's really cool because it's, it's high throughput and you can see a lot of things, but it's really low resolution. So luckily um, a group here in Australia invented a new technology uh, which they called 
RNA capture seq, and it allows us to amplify the sensitivity of sequencing from 30 times magnification to over 300 times magnification. And when we employed this um, to study the expression of non-coding RNAs in the brain of a, of a mouse who's just been recently trained to do certain things, all of a sudden we could see a whole population of non-coding RNAs being expressed in response to specific experiences, right? So different forms of learning, right? And different adaptive processes lead to unique signatures of non-coding RNAs in the brain. So that's cool, right? I mean, that's fascinating to think that, you know, different behavioral experiences and things that one goes through in life can engage different mechanisms of brain regulation. So um, what I'll do is I'll just, I mean, I don't want to bore you with too much of the detail, right? But the take-home message is that we're looking at this class of non-coding RNA. They're called long non-coding RNAs. And these are all transcripts that are longer than 200 nucleotides, and they don't make a protein, okay? Most of them are expressed in the brain, okay? But they're typically really low abundant. Um, but what do they do, right? So others have shown in, in different organisms and in different cell types and contexts that this class of RNA, okay, of which we thought was junk, right? It's not junk, right? There's lots of them expressed. And they do a lot of things, right? So they can interact with other RNAs to serve as kind of like sponges to sequester RNAs to promote or prevent them from being active. They can interact with proteins. They can interact with DNA. And what's really cool about long non-coding RNAs is that they're modular in their structure. So what this means is that there's, you can have a single long non-coding RNA which have, can have 25 different variants, right? And each of those variants is really just a mishmash of different fragments spliced together. And they can, each of them can have an independent function and it dictates what and where they interact within the cell. And they can have extraordinarily different functional properties based on this modular structure. Quick so what question. we know of, yeah, sure, sure, go ahead. Um, are these localized to particular regions in the brain, like the hippocampus, or, or? Ah, that's a great question. So we know that that they can be exquisitely cell type specific and regionally specific. Um, so you can look at some of the work, earlier work that John Maddock published, showing uh, brain images, right, cross sections of the hippocampus and the cortex of mice, and there is just this incredible um, specificity to where they're expressed. Not only that, but they're also highly state dependent, right? So there's some of them will only be expressed during early development, and then others will only come on in the adult brain, but only under certain conditions, right? Some are stress responsive, some are learning related. It's incredible, right? So that's an awesome question. Yes, there's a huge uh, degree of specificity and selectivity for when these non-coding RNAs, these long non-coding RNAs are expressed in the brain. So some of the cool functions though, right? They can act as control devices, right? So they can tell proteins to come turn on and off. They can direct proteins by serving as guides and they can even serve as scaffolds to allow DNA to fold in, in different conformational states. And it's all being directed by uh, the localized activity of these long non-coding RNAs.
So that's really important for today's talk. If you guys have taken a look at that paper, um, you know, we, we performed some really interesting sequencing uh, methodologies on the brains of mice that had been trained to either be afraid or not afraid. Okay, so um, in case you're interested in why we study this, um, it's because I'm very interested in how the brain changes in response to fear-related learning. And in particular, what goes wrong in the brain of people with phobias uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So we use these preclinical paradigms, these preclinical experimental approaches using mice, and we can behaviorally train them to be afraid or not afraid of, of certain things. And then we can look inside the brain and ask what's happening at the level of um, RNA regulation in response to experience. Okay, so we also did something nifty in this experiment. So not only were we looking for long non-coding RNAs, but we wanted to, to increase the resolution of our ability to detect learning specific long non-coding RNAs. So we went ahead and used a method called fluorescent activated cell sorting. So we would harvest the brain of an animal that had been previously trained to either be afraid or not afraid. And then we dissociated all the neurons in the frontal cortex of the animal. And then we used an antibody that recognizes a protein called ARC. And ARC is an immediate early gene that tells you that a cell or a neuron has been activated and is participating in a memory process. So we were able to sort out from a whole population of the frontal cortex of an animal, only the neurons that were turned on by the behavioral experience. And in, the, in one specific example, we looked at neurons that were turned on by fear extinction learning, which is the learning not to be afraid. And in doing so, we discovered that there are 434 long non-coding RNAs that are really selectively expressed in response to this form of learning, right? So these long non-coding RNAs come from an area of, of our DNA or the genome called enhancer regions, right? And for mo the most part, the field had thought that in these enhancer regions were only serving to promote gene expression by um, promoting folding of DNA. So the enhancer region where the DNA is would fold and then come in contact with a downstream gene promoter, which would then um, facilitate the expression of the gene, right? But what we found was that it's not just that, there are actually RNAs being expressed from those regions that have functional properties in of themselves. So hopefully you're still with me. So that's cool. So we've got a population of enhancer-derived long non-coding RNAs that are expressed only in response to learning not to be afraid, right? So that's a, that's a pretty big number, like 400, right? So, you know, what are they doing? And this, the subsequent to that, we drilled into this, the functional mechanism of how these, this, well, I, we chose one in particular that we discovered and we called it uh, ADRAM, which stands for activity dependent RNA associated with memory. And what we found was that this particular long non-coding RNA actually serves as a guide, right? So it physically binds to proteins that we know serve to regulate gene expression, and it guides them to their site of action in the genome. It's amazing, right? So through complementary base pairing, the long non-coding RNA 
sticks to proteins and then recruits them to a gene promoter of a gene that we know is essential for extinction learning. And that gene was called NR4A2. That's not all that important. But what's important here is that we have this class of RNAs, right? These long non-coding RNAs that are really sensitive to environmental stimulus and they're participating in coordinating the activity of the genome to drive memory formation. Right? So please let me know if, if that's, if I'm moving too fast or if that's too heavy or, you know, is everyone okay with that? I feel like it's yeah. perfect, but uh, please oh. give feedback because, you know, I'm a neuroscientist, so it could be, you know. Fun. Yeah, just, just making sure that folks are, you know, you wanna make sure you're interested in what we're saying here. So, so the no, fundamental truth, Yep. Totally, Sorry, totally, totally fascinating. Please, like, uh, there's, there's a lot that I'm, I'm definitely making notes off to read on later. But yes, please, please carry on. Okay. It's totally fascinating. Yeah. All right. So we found this link RNA. We called ADRAM. Okay. It was expressed from a region of the genome that there, there was transcriptional activity, but no function had ever been ascribed to this region of the genome. And this gene in particular, we found that it basically serves as a tuner. Right. So it's telling another gene you need to be turned on now because you're essential for this form of learning. So then in order to show that that is really truly part of learning and causally related, we engineered an RNA that could basically um, decoy and suppress the activity of ADRAM in the brain. And we introduced this into the brain of the mouse. And lo and behold, we got a massive impairment in the memory, right? So we were able to functionally manipulate the extinction memory by disrupting the activity of this long non-coding RNA called ADRAM. And importantly, all of those molecular mechanisms that I mentioned earlier, like in terms of how it recruits epigenetic modifiers to specific sites in the genome, all of those functions went away when we knocked down ADRAM in the brain. So this tells us that this long non-coding RNA, which is uh, experience dependent, right? So it's turned on in response to a specific learning process is essential for the formation of that kind of memory. So that's that's kind of that storyline there in terms of what we presented in this paper. That would be the real take home message for everyone. But I could take you a little bit further and tell you that not only are these long non-coding RNAs expressed in different cell types under different state dependent conditions, but they also go to different regions of the cell. So more recently in unpublished work, we're showing that there are long non-coding RNAs that are only expressed out of the synapse. And they do an entirely different functional um, process out of the synapse as opposed to what they're doing inside the nucleus of the cell. So you can imagine if you've got link RNAs expressed virtually everywhere in the cell, their primary goal is to promote the rapid on-demand tuning of a cell's function. And this is really important for learning and memory, right? Because things happen really fast when, when you're learning that, that requires really, really rapid changes in the way a cell works, okay? And there's a school of thought to think that, that thinks that memories reside primarily in changes at the synapse. Um, I agree in part with that, that there are massive changes in neuron-to-neuron uh, -neuron connections that occur during learning, um, but it's distributed, right? So there's rapid things that happen that are mediated by long non-coding RNAs 
that are out of the synapse, but there's also lots of fun things happening in the nucleus in the context of RNA directed regulation um, of the of our DNA in response to experience as well. Well, that I mean that's a story for another day, but suffice to say is that this paper showed that there are link RNAs that are specific to different forms of learning, that the majority of the genome is active, and we we just haven't looked closely enough yet to determine um, just how selective different regions of the genome um, are in the context of adaptation. But my guess is that we're going to start finding very, very cell-selective link RNAs and cell region-selective link RNAs that are critical for all forms of learning and memory, not just for this one that I talked about, which is fear extinction, right? There's going to be uh, link RNAs associated with addiction, link RNAs associated with impulsive behavior and um, habitual learning, all kinds of things. So any way that you can think of the way the brain can adapt, there's going to be a link RNA discovered that's going to be critical for that process. Okay. So that, that's the, the blurb that I have. Um, you know, feel free to ask questions now, um, and I can I'll do my best to answer. Thank you so I, much. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I already had so many messages, and if you see in the chat where people say, this is such an amazing talk, you were explaining it so well. So oh, Thank you. Thanks. Thank you that. And one question uh, that um, a colleague uh, has in the... Uh, wrote in the chat because he cannot talk. He um, he's asking, how did you choose NR4A2 and not one of the others? Was it because you saw already some upregulation, or was it some uh, previous work that um, mm. that led you to this? Well, we chose NR4A2 as our focal point um, because of the history of that immediate early gene, which is. Um, so been really well characterized in different forms of learning and memory. So a group in Iowa, um, his name is Ted Abel. Uh, he runs the Neuroscience Institute at the, in, at the University of Iowa. He discovered that these IEGs were critical for learning and memory a long time ago. And then his postdoc by the name of Marcelo Wood later went on to show that this particular IEG is really subject to epigenetic regulation. Right. So we we connected the dots with this particular link RNA that we discovered because of its proximity to NR4A2. And because once we saw that the ADRAM gene was expressed, we also saw that we looked concomitantly at NR4A2 and found that it was upregulated as well. Right. So most of the genes that we looked at for validation in that study were based on the fact that the link RNA was expressed proximal to this protein coding gene, and that all of the protein coding genes that we looked for gene pairs had previously been shown in some way to be involved in plasticity. And then we narrowed down to NR4A2 specifically because, well, because of the proximity of ADRAM in this learning condition, but also because of the history of, of our confidence that it's uh, directly involved in memory processing. I yeah. have a question for the future study probably um, did you or are you going to plan to look into a disease model where there's uh, you know a mouse-like form of PTSD or some other mm. fear related 
a disorder? Well, we use that model in the lab all the time, right? So we use a Pavlovian fear conditioning paradigm in the lab that we use as the kind of like studying the basic principles of the learning that is associated with phobia and PTSD. So we don't, I don't think it's necessary, at least in my hands, to, to develop a model that's specific to PTSD, because I think we're capturing the fundamental elements of the learning that's related to it. What, what's important is that if we can find genes or non-coding RNAs that are selective and involved in, say, fear learning versus fear extinction, I mean, that would be incredibly useful, right? Because then we can perhaps start developing therapeutics that selectively target the extinction process as opposed to the underlying fear memory, right? So there's a rich history in the, the fear learning world about what is fear learning and what is fear extinction, you know? Is, is fear extinction, which is the ability to basically inhibit or control the original fear memory, is that new learning or is it erasing the original memory? There are people ask me that all the time. You know, when I do extinction studies, am I erasing the original memory? And I can tell you that it's a little bit of both, but it, more often than not, it's, it expresses itself as a unique learning process, right? And that's really great. So if learning to control fear is a unique learning process, then that means we can go after it and target it selectively to enhance it. And we've done exactly that in other studies in the lab where we've discovered another class of non-coding RNA called circular RNAs. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of these, but they're, they're non-coding RNAs that actually form a, a, a basically a stable circularized transcript. So they've spliced to themselves. So now you literally have RNA circles flying around the cell. And we found that there are populations of circular RNAs that are only expressed at the synapse again. And if we turn one of them way up, right? So we introduce it into the cell and basically cause it to, to its expression to increase, we get a massive enhancement in extinction memory. It's really cool, right? So the only the next phase for that project is to figure out a way to package these synthetic circa RNAs into a delivery device to get it into the brain to make it a therapeutic as a cognitive enhancer for the treatment of PTSD and phobia. Hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, mm. Do you see a subpopulation in your animals that have a harder time to uh, do extinction, just like in people that cannot <laughs> learn that they safe again? And do you do you think you would see differences um, in the in this mechanisms? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, in that study, we actually because we've known for years that there are pretty significant sex differences in fear learning and extinction learning, and in the paradigm that we use in the lab, we find that female mice actually have a hard time extinguishing the fear. And it's not so much that they're in that the, the female mice are not able to learn extinction. It's just that the original fear learning is just so very strong that different conditions must be met for them to be to have effective extinction learning. And what we found is that in those female mice using this paradigm where they don't learn to extinguish, ADRAM's not turned on. So that's pretty cool, right? So there are examples where under certain conditions where you don't get successful extinction, you don't get the activation of ADRAM. So obviously the next experiment is to say, well, 
in those conditions, if I overexpress ADRAM in the brain of female mice, can I promote extinction learning in them? Right? So that's one area of interest. Um, we're also interested in looking at genetic vulnerabilities. So in a different um, set of experiments, looking at different non-coding RNAs, um, we studied mice that had a genetic vulnerability for impaired extinction, right? So they're called the DBA mouse. So we use a mouse in the lab called a C57 mouse, which is a standard laboratory mouse. It's uh, outbred or inbred, sorry, inbred, and it's been around for 50, 60 years. The DBA mouse is a more recent um, line of mice that folks have been using for other purposes, but along the way, they found that they had these wicked impairments in different forms of learning and memory, and one is extinction, right? And it has something to do with um, their genetic background and maybe the way their, their brain forms, um, whatnot. But what we found is that there are RNAs that are expressed in the C57 mouse, specifically in, er in an area of the brain called the amygdala, that if you express that same RNA that is found in the C57 mouse amygdala, put it into the DBA mouse, which doesn't normally express it, you can effectively rescue extinction memory. So in this, in this case, we've used a non-coding RNA, right, that we could overcome a genetic vulnerability and promote that learning process. So that was a paper published, um, I guess, two years ago now in, in a journal called Biological Psychiatry. And the kind of RNA that we were playing with in that study was called a microRNA. So hopefully folks have, have some idea of what microRNAs are. They're really interesting little creatures. They're tiny RNAs. They're only 20 nucleotides long. And they fly around the cell um, as a guide complex for a degrader called dicer. And when they recruit dicer to a target based on the 20 nucleotide sequence, which finds a, a complementary sequence in an mRNA, they can promote the degradation of that RNA. All of that stuff's happening in the brain in response to experience. And lots of that activity is also happening out of the synapse too. So long story long, yes, you can rescue a genetic vulnerability by using RNA-based therapeutics and using regulatory RNAs to promote uh, gain of function. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, please uh, go ahead, ask your questions. I saw Dr. Shah and Mike. Yes that Kyle has a question he asked me before and then and then please everyone else go go mm. ahead okay. yeah don't be shy no, I hopefully yeah. you know it might have been a lot of information but feel free thank you so much Tim for a wonderful work so my question is about the I mean male one which you just mentioned as I know that is 10 to 12 week old but for yeah. the female you had a pregnant female and no. what was the age? So that no. Was no, 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 no pregnant because females. Because the protocol no, we... that you just referred that it just mentioned about the pregnant female. That's why I was just wondering. So if it's not, uh, what was the old? No, 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 no. So the, the male and female mice are at the same age. Um, but we make a point in the study to that when we do these experiments in females, we don't worry about hormone states. There's mm -hmm. lots of people in the field that focus selectively on estrogen mediated effects because they are known to have effects on the genome. But we use randomly cycling females as a representative of the population. 
so we definitely, when, when you see pregnant females, that's usually because we're doing experiments where we have to isolate the embryos to do cell culture experiments. Mm. I see. But yeah. for sure there was no ADRAM expressing. In the, there was, the ADRAM was, yeah, well, it was expressed, but it wasn't activated in response to extinction training using the paradigm that we used. But that's okay. It doesn't mean that if we didn't use a more um, focused extinction protocol, right? So that's a, it's an interesting observation because the protocol we use in the lab these days, it has a historical reference um, in terms of when I was establishing the paradigm, working as a, as a postdoc at UCLA, we were very interested in, in rapid uh, behavioral exposure therapy. So we used a, a protocol that they call MAST training. So it's really where you bombard the subject with multiple cues rapidly in time to desensitize them to the, 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 the um, prediction of what's going to happen, if it's going to be bad or good. But other forms of learning called spaced training can actually lead to more robust learning in the long run. So my guess is that if we took the female mice and put them into an extinction protocol that was spaced and not masked, that you would get both effective extinction learning and you would probably get an induction of ADRAM in response to that learning in the female mice. Yeah, but considering that 14 3, mm. 3 is still interacting with the ADRAM, so it might happen, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, you, yeah, it may, it may be functional and maybe it's not quantitative, I guess is what you're saying. Yes, so you exactly. don't have to have abundance shifts, but you might say, well, we didn't actually do that. That's a very good question. Um, we haven't gone down that road yet to see whether or not the 1433 ADRAM interaction persists and is still doing its thing. I mean, at the, at the end of the day, yeah, that is a limitation of the study um, and it's worth pursuing in the future for sure. Yeah, it seems because it's a key regulatory and it's just a hypothesis it might. Yeah, happen. yeah. I mean, 1433 is really cool. Like Others had not you know, recognized just how important this class of chaperone proteins are in the cell. I mean, for them to be trafficking back and forth from the cytoplasm into the nucleus and sequestering different epigenetic modifiers away from the genome is quite quite phenomenal. I mean, it's been shown in stress, but it hadn't been shown in the context of learning. And it would be really cool to show that that, that process is actually happening both in the male and female animal. You're welcome. Hmm. Uh, okay, if I can jump in then, if no one's uh, in the queue at the moment. Um, sure. Okay, I've got, a, I've, I've got a couple of like sort of Dumber question, so please correct me if, if I'm misunderstanding anything here, right? Okay. Um, that when you mentioned about the um, extinction, uh, sorry, the fear extinction learning, right? That yes. from what you described, that's like someone learning to not be afraid, right? Like a, like a person could, like, and and their the real life could, I don't know, like try and skydive or meditate or any number of actual mm -hmm. behavioral things people can do to overcome like a fear or a phobia or, or anything like that right yes um, yes so that's the thing you're talking about now when that happens like in the real world doing that i mean obviously it's all the real world you get what i'm saying um mm -hmm. is that producing the adram 
Well, we don't know yet. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I would expect that in humans that there's going to be a similar link RNA. It may not be exactly ADRAM per se, but it'll be a similar link RNA that would be dynamically uh, expressed in response to this this switching, right? Because essentially what extinction is telling you to do, it's telling the brain that, hey, this cue used to predict a really bad consequence. And now when the cue comes in a neutral world or a neutral environment, it no longer predicts that. So your brain has to switch. And it's that activation of different brain regions that leads to the cognitive flexibility of switching one's behavior from a relevant context to a different context. Right. So then uh, like if I was scared of a spider when I was a baby, but then I'm older and then I stand and I see a spider in the bath, and if yes. I keep seeing that, I'm then less afraid because yes. it's a neutral environment and neural plasticity means that it, my brain can adapt and change, right? Um, yes, exactly. exactly. Rather than always being afraid because I learned it a long time ago. And yes. then the ADRAM thing is the, 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 the interference of that and the plasticity I'm yeah, well, lost yeah and it might, be, it might be really context specific, right? So the ADRAM induction might only occur under different con- uh, specific contexts that are not the same as the original fear context, right? I mean, you don't want, when a person learns not to be afraid of something anymore, they don't want to erase the fear forever. They just want to tune the response so that it's relevant and important to the context in which the person is at that moment in time. So spider... You, you need to be afraid of the spider if you come across it in the garden. You don't want to get bitten, right? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like you, but you don't, you know, it, if you see the spider on a television screen, then you know that the context doesn't warrant that response anymore. And that's where the induction of ADRAM should come in and help the brain to adapt, to make that, that decision to respond appropriately, depending on the context. That is fascinating. And one last mm. thing before I give the floor up to somebody else. Um, sure. Is that, does, does this mean then that like theoretically um, with, with something like this, this is just such a crucial underpinning of how we learn and grow and all sorts of things. Could this be potential treatment? I, I'm, I'm kind of imagining some kind of cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe in alignment with some kind of medication that can sort of speed the process up, you know, like not simply just taking a pill and you're not afraid of stuff, but maybe something no. like, I'd, anyway, um, does this mean- That's it exactly it. Oh, cool. Uh, does this mean it's something that could potentially be applicable in all sorts of things such as fear of public speaking or even like the fear of failure that people can have and other types of learning or- Absolutely. A number of anxieties and things like that to, to really yeah. and, push and impulsive behavior and drug seeking behavior, anything that requires the, the a person to, to, to ramp up the, the ability to have more cognitive flexibility, I think is really the beauty here. Right. So it will be an ad like this sort of idea is that it will be an adjunct to therapy. Right. So that you can strengthen learning. Um mm under normal behavioral conditions. So I, I just use the doctor's office and the exposure to the spider as the example, right? So that what would happen is that you would go to the doctor's office, you'd take the, the um, treatment in conjunction with the behavioral therapy, and then it would strengthen it such that when you went out into the neutral world, the memory would be strong enough to express itself anywhere. 
So you kind of promote the generalization of the ability to control fear. So it absolutely would function as an as an adjunct to uh, cue-based exposure therapies, for sure. That yeah. is mind-blowing. Thank you very much. Okay, You're welcome. Um, whoever's next can ask her. Or can Thanks very much. That actually led very well into um, the question I was going to ask. I, I've been reading um, a lot of this paper, inhibitory mechanisms in the processing of negation. Yeah. Neural reuse hypothesis. So that that's basically what I was looking at. It's almost actually a form of uh, ascetic practice, mm -hmm. um, in a sense. And so, I was wondering if you could just go in in a little bit more detail as to um, perhaps how how that that works. Um, you know, mm -hmm. basically, you, you know, building uh, inhibitory control and, and also yep. the use of negation. Okay. Well, I mean, the, the, the inhibitory control is, I mean, at the network level, it's really quite interesting, right? So you have in the prefrontal cortex, there are two subregions, which are really cool. So there's one called the prelimbic region, which is more dorsal on the top end of the brain and the, fr the frontal cortex. And then right below it is an area called the um, ventromedial prefrontal cortex or the infralimbic region of the prefrontal cortex. Why that's important structurally is because the top one, PL, we call it, prelimbic, has excitatory connections to the emotional center of the brain called the amygdala. Whereas the infralimbic prefrontal cortex, which is really just below it, it actually has inhibitory connections. So that's cool, right? So you end, now you have one brain region which receives all kinds of connectivity from, you know, the hippocampus and different other cortical regions where one is like the go signal and the other one's the stop signal. So when we're looking at all of these changes that occur in response to extinction learning, what we're really looking at is the activity in that area that promotes the stop signal, the infralimbic region. I mean, does that kind of answer your question a little bit? Is that there's an integration between inhibitory pathways and excitatory pathways in the brain of which we're when we were looking at this in the mouse's brain we are focusing specifically on that area that drives inhibitory control over the emotional center and then what we found is that there are genes that promote that signal right and adram is one of them by way of its regulation of nr4a2 so the permissive signal of telling the emotional center to slow down comes from this infralimbic region of the prefrontal cortex of which we were studying the selective activity in response to extinction training. So there's yeah, was, inter... Was, yeah, so go ahead. Sorry, that, that was amazing. Um, so there's a lot of um, talk about meditation um, right mm -hmm. now. And, um, yeah. So there, there's a attention and arousal state. Uh, yes. Also yeah. used in, in a form of meditation. So that that is kind of what that reminded me of. And you explained that uh, so so very well. So um, yeah. this is this is really good knowledge for anyone that's uh, willing to listen. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, you're welcome for sure. Thanks. That's a great question. Thank you. Uh, I have another. A couple questions from the audience that wrote in the chat. Um, 
that I wanted to um, ask because they apparently they don't want to come up. And, and well, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. I can't um, see the chat function there, but go ahead, you. Yeah, it's fine. I'll I'll do that. Um, so um, they asking about or uh, male uh, female differences, and mm. um, are there maybe also differences in how the male versus female display behaviors? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Great question. Yes. So there's definitely different. Um, I guess we'll call it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a, well, it's an approach that, or what's the word? Oh, I've, it's tip of the tongue. I can't remember the word right now. But yes, so males and females do behave differently under stressful conditions, at least when I'm talking about mice here right now, okay? So some animals, mostly males, will exhibit a freezing-like behavior, which is a measure of, we use freezing as a measure of memory strength. But other animals will actively um, dart and avoid, right? So they'll run and they'll try to escape, right? And females tend to use that strategy more often than males. So yes, I mean, it's possible that when we're doing these experiments that you know, we, we really have to expand the repertoire of the behavioral responses in the specific context, right? So females are much more efficient learners and they use better uh, strategies to cope as opposed to the males, at least in mice. I think it's also true for humans. I think there's a lot of similarities with our, uh, for our little friends there. Although the uh, prospect of being an industrialized organism is kind of, uh, just has me mm. reflecting on that old show, Pinky in the Brain. I'm just thinking, mm. like, do, do you ever have any bad, like, bad juju? How, I don't know how else to phrase it, but like any res reservations about experimenting in this way on these organisms and if, if it's too personal uh, i don't mind uh, that. that's always what comes you know, to mind no it's a great question and yes my entire career i've always wrestled with this idea of of you know is this is this ethically correct what we're doing but i've come to the conclusion that there is no other way to understand the inner workings of the brain unless we use a model system like this. You can't do this by simulations in a computer, and we can't use simpler organisms like worms or flies or something like that. So sadly, this is the lowest um, organism we can go to that shares the similar structural features and behavioral repertoires that, that humans do. So it is, it's, it is hard to reconcile from an ethical perspective, but I've accepted that we, you know, we need to do this in order to better understand ourselves. Yeah, yeah, because mm -hmm. I, I, I've done little experiments with uh, like praying mantis. We had this lab. There was all these praying mantis like hatched out of it. They were all fighting each other, decapitating themselves. Exactly. Turn on the humidifier and they all kind of dried up by the morning and everybody was sad in the lab and so on and it was like a kind of a, a sad little moment that we all uh, reflected on yeah. and uh, we were much more careful since then but just thinking yeah. about the implications sometimes with these organisms i also find or at least a previous researcher who came here uh, discussed yeah. using insects um uh, i guess the next question is like what is the next organism after the mouse if if, uh, if you have that roadmap kind of uh, 
in terms of which way one could go to not use the mouse. What, what was the next more complex organism in this hierarchy? Oh. Of, I guess in this oh. flow of oh, people are people use non-human primates, right? As the as the next intermediate before humans. Oh, okay, because like uh, uh, Elon and I guess maybe some folks in Russia and stuff use pigs. So pigs are also very yeah. intelligent. Very pigs, yeah, pig, pigs are really good for um, studying like cardiac function and stress hormones and stuff like that. And yeah, I guess they did use them for for controlling uh, uh, brain devices, right? But the next stage, of course, and sadly, would be uh, non-human primates. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. But I'm you know, it goes in the opposite. Sorry to interrupt, but it goes in the opposite direction. There are now movements towards driving um, organic typic cultures. So you can use these things called brain organoids, which can recapitulate different um, developmental processes in the brain. So it's not good for studying learning and memory, of course, in the adult brain. But if you want to study processes related to early brain development, there are now three dimensional organoids that can be derived from stem cells that start to confer properties of function in the brain. And there's like, you know, different uh, cortices being developed and different subcortical structures. It's pretty cool. But again, it serves a purpose, um, but doesn't necessarily capture what we're trying to do with understanding complex behavior. Yeah, we recently had a discussion of a report on the brain organoids, but um, mm. fascinating stuff. I wanted to um, step back a little bit on the significance of your work. Um, you've uncovered, you know, over 400 of these, these long recording mm. RNAs. It, what's fascinating is um, certainly with respect to, you know, um, understanding the brain in terms of the neural network, what this seems to open up is how much additional in such a wide, broad range of um, you know, dynamical change, for, for lack of a better term, the, mm -hmm. a, neuron, a neuron can undergo uh, just within itself based on not, <laughs> you know, not just neuroplasticity, but actual genomic expression in these RNAs, you know, flying around and doing, uh, you know, yeah. modifying things. Um, yeah. So, so the, yeah, that, that's, um, well, it's incredible, but Inter in, and I really appreciate your perspective of how many other areas of application in psych psychiatry and mental health that this could could impact. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, did you uh, have a chance, and I'm sure they must be, but in terms of astrocytes and other types of, of cells in, um, in the brain? Yeah, uh, we, have, we, ha we haven't gone down that road yet. We've I mean, we we started with just being able to increase our resolution for looking at uh, select neuronal populations that were turned on by an experience. But absolutely, I mean, the breadth of the different diverse cell types in the brain and how they're interacting and controlling mm -hmm. brain function is going to be a huge area of focus in the next little while. I don't know if you guys have heard of RNA transfer, but there's a, an emerging idea that RNA cargo can be transferred between cells and one of the biggest players to do that are astrocytes. Mm -hmm. So they can transmit information in the form of RNA from astrocyte to neuron, which then changes the way the neuron responds, right? So there's definitely some, some area to grow there. But the, you know, the broader implications of understanding the, the 
the dark genome or the, the non-coding genome is that there's been a, a lot of studies looking for genetic evidence of vulnerability for disease, right? So they're looking for polymorphisms in the genome. They call them GWAS studies, genome-wide association studies. And what to date, folks have kind of come to the conclusion that maybe there have been a big failure <laughs> because they can't predict a person's vulnerability to disease, at least a complex disease like a psychiatric disorder, based on uh, mutational profiles derived from samples taken from the blood. Just doesn't work that, right, that way, right? Part of what we're doing is saying, hold on, maybe there is a connection, but you need to look in the non-coding genome and look at where those mutations are occurring and what is the functional relevance of those mutations in those RNAs that are being expressed from those regions, right? Because typically GWAS studies were like, oh, look, there's a mutation. It's two megabases away from this protein coding gene, but because it's close enough, it must be associated with that gene. Do you see what I'm saying? So non-coding, to understand the non-coding world is going to help us understand all of that effort that has been driven towards understanding genetic prediction of disease. But then the plot's going to get even thicker because we're also starting to come to realize that, you know what, every neuron in the brain is actually a pretty selfish entity. And all it wants to do as a cell is survive and integrate into networks to promote its survival, right? So the more often it's connected to an engram or a, a memory process, the more likely it is going to survive in the long term. So the neurons we're starting to investigate this quite heavily is that they're, they're suckers for adaptation. So they'll change. They change their propensity for responsiveness across their own lifetime. So they're not fully part of the collective. They are part of the collective, but on an individual level, a neuron is constantly adapting and updating its functional responses to the environment around it. And part of that, we think, involves changes in the genetic code. So somatic mutation, right? So there's changes in the DNA code that correspond with lifelong experience that could be different from one individual neuron to another. Imagine that. That's crazy, right? Yeah, that is crazy. That kind of reminds me of uh, whenever I have the flu or even COVID, I always feel kind of like the conscious difference. And so, like, yeah. I'm asking yeah. the question, to what extent do viruses mess this sort of regulatory framework? And in the memory function, does the memory function in any way correlate with immune activity? Because I've, I guess I've been taught or learned along the years that uh, neurons tend to bring with them an armada of the immune system, and wherever they go, they tend to bring uh, accelerated uh, regeneration and other things like that. So yeah, uh, I do yeah. like the picture of them being their own organism, uh, but maybe you have some uh, intuition about how these microRNA or other structures play into this orchestration mm. with the immune system. So there's definitely crosstalk, crosstalk, but what's even more fascinating is that neurons by their nature are post-mitotic. They don't differentiate, right? So they're terminal. They've co-opted a lot of the immune regulatory machinery to serve their own benefit. So there are enzymes that are involved in um, RNA and DNA mutation that's critical for um, causing diversity in the immune response. Okay, so there's these enzymes called ADARs. And these ADARs actually have been co-opted by neurons to promote updating in neurons as well and adaptation in neurons. So the immune system 
is in all effect a memory system, right? And the immune system is definitely not only cross-talking with the central nervous system, but that the central nervous system has hijacked that machinery to use for its own purposes. So that's a great question. There is a lot of work in that space now on the crosstalk between how the immune system functions and how the central nervous system um, adapts in conjunction with it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we've been looking at double-stranded RNA and other metabolic byproducts as these kind okay. of indicators of activity. So, yeah, yeah, very. Yeah, look up ADAR one, Apobec, all of those. They're functionally active in the central nervous system. We went on to show that ADAR1, for example, this is crazy. So it's an immune system activator, right? ADAR1 binds to DNA, but it only binds to DNA when it's in a Z conformation. So the DNA is responding to shifts in the environment and it alters its conformational state, which is dramatically different from what Watson and Crick discovered with a right-handed double helix. The DNA is doing all, all kinds of other stuff and it goes in a left-handed turn and basically allows itself to be open for mutational load. And all of that process is being dictated in part by these immune-related enzymes like ADAR1. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It's truly, uh, it's truly complex. <laughs> so yeah, awesome. so kind, kind of riffing on that, um, is there any suggestion of RAG1, RAG2 uh, recombination affecting these uh, uh, transcripts that are interacting with other things? Yeah, we haven't seen that, but there was a paper many years ago showing that if you mess around with RAG1, you get dramatic memory deficits. So all of that um, DNA repair and mutational machinery, all of that stuff's active in the brain uh, in the context of adaptation. <clears throat> so DNA double strand breaks, it's a normal functional process, right? It's, these are not lesions that are occurring, right? That's a cool question. Very interesting answer. Yeah, because <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't know about that. I hadn't looked at RAG1, RAG2 since like the early to mid 90s. Um, so a different question, um, and this could be entirely adventitious, but um, when I saw the title of your paper, I immediately uh, said, oh, chaperones, um, un <laughs> yeah. unfolded, um, unfolded proteins caught you know are, are yeah. part of the cellular stress response and it's just yeah. very tempting to draw a line between that and fear is is this pure coincidence oh well you know chaperone the 1433 family has been shown for years to be really highly abundant in the brain right and if you disrupt 1433 you get effects on memory um the chaperone protein story is going to continue, continually evolve. And I would draw your attention to another paper by Ted Abel's group recently, which had looked at that protein, uh, the what is it called? The unfolding protein response, UPR or whatever it is, in learning and memory. So we, we hijacked the idea that chaperones are involved in RNA-directed regulation, but they've actually shown that that protein folding an unfolding response is critical for memory as well. So Ted Abel at the University of Iowa. Now, an, an interesting point that again, may or may not be relevant, probably not, mm. but um, um, uh, one of the things that seems to be characteristic of uh, at least SARS-CoV-2 and possibly other 
um, mm-hmm. coronaviruses is that they actually manipulate the unfolded protein response. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's cool. And you know what, you know, the, the consequence of some of that? So in the lab next door to me at UQ, they're studying the effect of COVID on the brain and they're finding that the COVID uh, virus actually leads to fusogen activity in the brain. And it's called, it's leading to the formation of, they call them syncytia. So multinucleated cell populations that coordinate activity. So that I would imagine that that protein folding response is gonna be implicated in that process. So, so um, in that case, do you know if that's uh, neuron to neuron or neuron to like glia to neuron or uh, glia to glia? Neuron to neuron right now. Is oh, because I mean, it's it, it, at, at least at least on, on uh, you know, um, the, the virologists on Twitter, there's been a lot of debate about uh, whether SARS-CoV-2 is, is neurotrophic or not. Um, and uh, I mean, oh, seeing Syncytia being like yeah. an active process is is kind of kind of significant. Yeah, big time. I I, th- I thought that paper was out, maybe in Science Advances or something. It just came out, but they're actively pursuing it. It's really crazy. But you know, the thing about non-coding RNAs that we have to realize is that the majority of the link RNAs that are expressed in the brain come from retrotransposon elements in the brain. So the majority of the link RNAs will have line and signs embedded within them. So meaning that they originally were viral integrations, right? So there's this like evolution of the brain that relied on viral integrations and those viruses then somehow were co-opted to drive new genes, you know, and the end point of course with protein coding genes. But what we're seeing is like real-time evolution when you start seeing the activity of link RNAs in the brain. That's pretty crazy. It really is. Yeah, it's awesome though. Again, it's like just such, we're only scratching the tip of the iceberg with all this, right? And people are harnessing the power of these retrotransposon elements to drive synthetic programmable RNAs to coordinate brain activity, right? So some of these these long non-coding RNAs that have uh, B2 signs in them, they actually, they call them signups. They're link RNAs that can drive the translation of a target gene, supposedly by having IRES elements embedded within them or IRES-like elements embedded within them. So it's a, like, like a synthetic IRES that can promote the translation of a downstream gene or a target gene without that gene having to be activated independently of itself, right? Without the promoter of the gene. Okay, at one point in time, I did, know, did remember what IRES stands for, but could you refresh my memory? The ribosome, uh, internal ribosome entry, uh, response element. Entry okay. site, sorry, entry and, site, yeah. And, and, yeah. yeah. So, so it's a synthetic IRES element embedded within a link RNA that comes from a retrotransposon that drives the regulation of protein coding genes. I know, it's nuts. But the link RNA world, I mean, there's just so much going on, right? Another example, and I just wanna bore everybody with too much detail, but we discovered a link RNA called GAS5 that has 26 isoforms. Some of the isoforms are only functional at the synapse. Others are only functional in the nucleus. 
Isn't that incredible? <laughs> it's like, wow, come on. Alternative splicing added on display. I was about to ask if that was what was happening. That's crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Yeah, and the one that we found that's out of the synapse, it actually drives um, the trafficking and coordination of RNA granules. So you've probably heard of like, you know, these membraneless uh, condensates, right? Phase separated condensates that are happening uh, in different compartments of the cell. So we think that these link RNAs are actually involved in the trafficking of those, those uh, RNPs or ribonucleoprotein complexes. So real quick question. So like, sure. these like RNA segments, like, is that, are they conserved? Because it kind of seems like they have a large role and too much variation would be like bad. Yeah, no, they're they're not they're they're not typically not as conserved as one would expect, and that's been the argument against them for so long. Is that like, hey, wait a second, they're not conserved. But you know what is conserved is their structure. So they're not undergoing sequence selection, undergoing selection for sequence, but they are for their structure state, and their structure state gets dictated by their alternative splicing pattern, right? So it's crazy. So the the complexity there in terms of how they can generate a similar function across species is not dependent on its underlying conserved sequence. So final question for me. So like if you wanted to like, like maybe like create like a, a some type of like computing program to like search for the potential of such sequences, would you be looking for sequences that have the potential to form like secondary structures? Yes, 100%. You nailed it. <laughs> Absolutely. If you could find a way to predict the structure state based on the alternative splicing pattern, then you'll nail the, be able, the ability to predict function. Absolutely. This is crazy. <laughs> hi, it, hi, it's Jamie again. Can I just share one uh, thought and observation I had as you were describing everything here? That sure. was, um, how how fascinating would it be if you could have a chance to have a look at, uh, you know, I've heard of some human beings who like, can't feel fear, like they're not oh. able to. Oh, wow. And, yeah, yeah. And, and you have a look and see is, is what you're working on, would it, to see this mechanism either overridden by too much ADRAM or does it not work at all? Or I'm sure you could probably find some fascinating stuff in that. Eh? Oh, yeah. At, at that level, yeah. I mean, you, I don't know how we would get in to be able to see whether or not there's selective gene expression happening in the brain, but we could at least look for regional activity. Saying so, you know, that there's a population of people who have a superior autobiographical men, mem, memory. They're called SAMs and they just remember everything, right? So it's kind of the opposite of, you know, you're talking about a person who doesn't feel fear, but what about the person who just can't forget? They just remember everything, right? That's that's I, what I think I what would be fascinating to understand. Yeah, I, well, I, I don't know if it was it was a fallacious story, but it was like a a, a, was a Russian, he's a chess player and something like that, and he he could remember everything. He had to mm. kind of learn to forget. Like, yeah, I yeah. Kind of he had to learn probably, to forget. Yeah, yeah, it was something strange like that, like because it was actually a, a problem for him. Yeah. yeah. There are people out there. There's a lot of people out there. So again, if you look up James McGaw at UC Irvine, he's been studying these SAM subjects for years, right? And they're just, they, they have this incredible ability to remember specific details 
on specific from specific dates in history and time in their own lives. Incredible, right? If we could be given something to make our brains go into like hyperdrive memory like that, I, I can't yeah. imagine what that would do for learning from then <laughs> on, right? Because so many yeah, times you spend your time relearning things over and over again. Yeah, and it's probably already in there, but the issue is not being able to retrieve the memory, right? So that's the problem is that the break on the system is too strong. We, every time we experience something, we don't forget it. We just, we just can't retrieve it unless the appropriate cue is presented to us. But if we could understand how to relieve that break, oh yeah, big time. Is that, is that what these shepherd proteins are? Like when I, I, I don't know if I was understanding them properly because it looks Could like there's be. a balance going on with um, the ADRAM, um, you know, like helping you learn to... Yeah. You forget, but there's something else that's countering that, right? To yeah, kind of say, absolutely. Do a little bit of a job, but not too much, not too much. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. We we discovered a microRNA many years ago that was only activated at the time of retrieval. So and it promoted the updating of memory. So it would temporarily repress processes related to one memory to allow new learning to, to proceed, right? So my guess is that that's the beauty of non-coding RNAs is that they're so rapid and fast acting, they can function on the order of milliseconds. They don't need the long industrious process of generating a new gene, a transcript, manufacturing a protein, causing the protein to change. They can ha happen and be functionally relevant on the like kind of like enzymatic reactions really, really quick. And that's what you need for memory processes, right? And so I think a lot of non-coding RNAs are going to be functioning on that time scale really, really quickly. What's that time scale like, uh, relatively speaking, nanoseconds or because like no, I've done no milliseconds is what we've been told, but I have not actually measured the kinetics of the link RNA interaction, say with ADRAM and and 1433. So we don't know that yet. Oh, okay, yeah, because it'd be amazing to see this kind of symphony live or in real time or close to some oh, yeah. sort of time dependent signal yep. would be really interesting to see kind of this orchestration or how it occurs. Because yep. um, right now, I think you're looking at like steady state systems, or at least that's the kind of modeling that I'm familiar with, uh, steady state yeah. equilibrium solutions. Well, it's not steady state, it's inducible, right? So we're looking at um, in induced states, right, relative to a, a constitutively active state. But yeah, I mean, uh, how we would be able to do that in real time to look at the kinetics of the interaction, we probably have to go in vitro and use like um, like fluorescent tagging of the RNA, and then tag the protein and look for, look for um, interactions, kinetic interactions. But, but I don't know how. To be honest, that's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> Can I just have one last thing uh, to do with what I was mentioning before? And I promise I won't, I'll be really quick here. Just the the conversation was going that way. But when you mentioned that there was um, potentially mRNA things that were inhibiting like recall and things like that you know there's a lot more going on with the learning yep. and retrieving process and um, I, I heard once i described that uh, memories are almost like looking for real estate and and the the brain with the neurons you know trying to like you know a, a memory tries to take over as many neurons as it can and it can overwrite other memories and things like this does this mean then that not only would that be a thing mm. that's happening but also that there could be a lot of um M mRNA things happening under the surface to almost like tip mm -hmm. the scales to say this memory can get in, but this memory can't for some reasons that we don't know. 
Absolutely. If you think about like the distributed nature of memory, right? So there's a, an idea that there's multiple engrams of the same memory in order to kind of like competitive traces to protect a memory from being degraded. You know, well, how would that be established? And well, like I referred to earlier, it might be through this idea that you're getting RNA cargo being transmitted between neurons to establish um, ex an expansion of a neural network that was originally, you know, maybe a, a cluster of uh, 500 or 1,000 neurons becomes 10,000 neurons perpetually over wow. time because of the spreading of the information. Well, thank you very much for indulging me there, just for, for, no, <laughs> thanks okay. very much. All good, all good. Thanks very much for the great questions. Um, I know it's getting late. I wanted to ask you one uh, question, like my own question. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, do you think that this is the most likely mechanism for inheriting uh, traumatic memories? Um, you know, epigenetic mechanisms like methylation are stripped away mm. during development, yeah. but the non-coding DNA doesn't. So, mm. and it self-replicates and so on. So, so mm. do you think, and is that something you're, would like to look into? Mm. So we aren't pursuing that question directly. We have collaborators uh, in Melbourne that have been studying small RNA mediated transmission across generations, right? So you can get um, behavioral phenotypes that occur as a, the function of uh, paternal experience, right? So paternal exercise or paternal stress shows itself up in the F2 generation, and they think it's mediated by small RNAs. There's a group in Switzerland that's been working on long non-coding RNA mediated transmission. And, and a fellow by the name of Rachevi, I think it is, in Israel, has been studying this in great detail in worms. And extraordinarily, they found small non-coding RNAs that are expressed in the brain of the worm, in neurons, that somehow get transmitted across the germline. So a signal from the brain gets perpetuated. That's just mind-blowing when you think about it. So, so non-coding RNA, I think, is going to be a, a major feature of uh, non-genomic modes of inheritance. Uh, I, I'm waiting for him to tweet the, the GIF that goes along with that. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about, eh? He's, a, he's a, definitely a, a presence on Twitter. He's <laughs> like, you have to immediately share it with me once you see it, please. <laughs> I'm just curious about the circular RNA in the synapse being yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that transmitted to the postsynaptic um, region? It's, and we, we know it's expressed in, yeah, we know it's expressed in the postsynaptic compartment because it interacts with scaffolding proteins for NMDA receptor. Okay. Okay. Mm. It couples right into <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Cool, cool. Well, all right, everybody. Thank you very much. That was a very cool discussion. And I yeah. really appreciate the invitation. And that, that's great. Um, and uh, just um, to apologize if I did the title a little bit provocative also to the oh. audience. There was a discussion. Oh, that's great. This is great. This, this provokes <laughs> conversation and debate and all kinds of things, right? 
Yeah, because I able to junk DNA and I did it kind of on purpose because I don't believe in junk DNA. So (laughs) so I apologize. But um, yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, You explained everything very well. The audience was very interested and great feedback. And I hope we have you back sometime in the future. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Love to join in again. Yeah. Wonderful. That makes so me much. always happy when the speakers also had fun. So yeah. yeah, you know what you should do with a topic though. You should get a few, a few of us in the space online all together and have the debate together, yes. right? I mm. thought that. I thought that mm. in the future. Yeah. Uh, once we have invited um, speakers, enough speakers of a topic. Yeah. Um, that they know us that we then make like a group session. So I totally agree with you. I'm so happy you think that. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Like yeah, we might need another pandemic to help coordinate all the schedules. True, true. Katarina does an amazing job of scheduling these things. And sometimes it's in the morning, sometimes it's in the evening. It's, per, in fact, a global schedule. So uh, if you have any uh, recommendations or anyone you would like to submit to argue with, maybe uh, an arch nemesis from conferences that you put in oh, or a friend. No, I was thinking get John. John Maddock, if you, we got him online, you'd enjoy hearing from him. He's he's very, very good. Yeah. He's, he's, the, he's the grandfather of non-coding RNA biology in this country anyway. Yeah, I got picked up by like three people because I'm Clubhouse's resident debate coach. So I'd love to moderate that. If you all do that, that would just make me all <laughs> cool. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. All right. We had Jenny Graves here from Australia. I don't know. I think she would maybe be more, um, yeah, more yeah. a defender of, of actually the junk DNA term. But anyway, but she yeah. was wonderful. She was. She gave about the micro chromosomes. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. She she gave a talk about that. Anyways, thank you so much. We really appreciate Welcome. the time you spent with us and answering all of our questions. It was wonderful. No worries. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thank you. To leave a room is on the top. There's leave quietly a little button. If you, I'll make announcements for the next room. So if you don't yes. want to be around. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> thank you. Thank Bye. you. Yeah. And. Thank you everyone for coming, asking these great questions, for having this amazing chat room discussions um, in parallel. It, it was a wonderful room. So thank you everyone for being here and participating. And uh, we'll, if you like um, events like this, uh, follow the Science Society Club. We will have tomorrow at noon in New York City, so EST, Dr. Berlivanidis, uh, he's at the UCL in London, and he will talk about human vision and how it reconstructs time. Uh, so it's more a systems uh, neurobiology room, and I think it will be really interesting. And then on Friday, we have a physics room uh, with Dr. Krasnokutsky. Uh, from the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and he will talk about how building blocks like peptides of life form on space dust. 
so this will be also really exciting. Uh, so it's it's a morning room. It's at 10 a.m. since he's in Germany. And yeah, and next week we will have a few environmental rooms, a rare earth compounds, how to use machine learning to find them, how gravity emerges, holographic principle. We'll have Dr. Person. He is a, a theoretical physicist. Um, then about laser development, Parkinson disease, and um, uh, IBM researcher from Switzerland who will talk about neuromorphic computing, neural networks, and he's focusing more on the synaptic side of it. So yeah, thank you everyone for coming. Come back, join us again, and uh, have a good night, morning, day, wherever you are. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye, thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. See you all soon.